Welcome to Boomeranging, from expat to repat, a podcast that explores the question, what could be so hard about returning home after years living overseas? I'm your host, Margot Anderson, and in each episode, I will sit down with a former Aussie expat to discuss how they survived repatriation and reverse culture shock, how they navigated the logistics of careers, friends, and family to successfully find their new place at home, and all without losing their global spirit. If you have just returned home, are thinking about it, or just love a good yarn told by professional globetrotters, then I have no doubt you'll enjoy meeting this diverse group of Australians. Data and tech, it is hard to find a skill and an industry in higher demand right now. So when Wage Reese came home in March 2020, after several years of living in London and working for some global tech and media giants, including Facebook, she too was confident that having this juggernaut brand on her CV would at least start some conversations. Only it didn't. After six months of reacquainting with family and sending her CV to 20 plus recruiters and struggling to get even a phone call returned, she realised getting a job back home was going to be much harder than she originally thought. Without a job, she was also missing her profession and having a network to talk about data and all things tech. So while she continued to navigate the job market, she focused on what she could control and action and created the Women in Analytics and Data Community, or WAD as it is now known, which has held events in Melbourne and Brisbane and is quickly gaining momentum elsewhere. And finally, after 18 months, she got a job, hired by an international company more than happy to take advantage of her international experience. I'm keen to find out more about how Wage navigated 18 months of trying to negotiate the job market and what was the trigger for her to take fate into her own hands and create her own industry network. So welcome, Wage. Hello, Margot. Thank you. A pleasure to have you here. Where are we chatting with you today? We're chatting from sunny Brisbane in Australia. I hear it's very warm up there at the moment too. Yes, it is. It's been sweltering. It's a nice change from uh, gloomy Melbourne and London. So you were actually born overseas before immigrating to Australia. So I guess there's always been um, an international flair to your life. Can you share a little bit of your background with us? Yeah, sure. So I was born in one of the most dangerous slums of Brazil, if not the most dangerous one at the moment. Um, what? Moved over to Australia when I was five years old. Grew up in a loving, normally normal family in Melbourne. Had a pretty normal life up until I was a teenager. And um, we moved to Brazil to live and for me to study in the slums of Brazil as a teenager. And that was when my wake-up call came along because I realised the opportunity that Australia has with their wonderful public schooling system and I wanted to work really hard to make the most of that opportunity so that I could set up a strong foundation for myself and Mm -hmm. eventually be able to help out my community back at home. So I was fortunate enough to be the only person in my family of nine aunties and uncles, a big family, to be able to finish primary school, high school, university and postgrad. So amazing. Yeah, really, really grateful for that opportunity. And from a young age, I knew that I was destined to 
live and work overseas and make the most of the opportunity that the world has. And um, yeah, so that led me on my adventures to where I went and lived over in London and um, had a great time. So you went back during school to Brazil. Did you come back to Australia for university or how did that all unfold for you? Yeah, it was only for a temporary time. We were there for about four months. The plan was to stay for six, but it living in the slums of Brazil broke me a little bit. So we came back after four months. I mean, it was the most and still is the most incredible experience of my life. And I was fortunate enough to have that tipping point so early on. And that's always been my driving force for my career and my education and my relationship with my friends and family, because life could have been so different. It was the sliding doors moment and I could have seen and I saw what my life could have been and where it is now. Incredible formative experiences. It's amazing. So you come back to Australia, you do uni. How long was it between uni and and when you went to London? Like what were you doing pre-London? I finished uni. I moved into um, the graduate program of the wealth management part of ANZ and I spent sort of I think it was six years between uni and then moving to London so I worked as a private banker financial planner to begin with and realized that my passions lay in analytics so I followed that um, and worked as a consultant um, for all different types of companies and verticals over the next six years and I realized that my career wasn't gaining traction as much as I wanted it to. I felt like the market was too small in Melbourne and I knew that I was always destined to go and work overseas. So I thought that was what I was going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So you head to London, I guess, really on the back of a career driver, but also with the, the opportunity to go and travel and see the world. You go for what you think will be three to five years. Talk to us about how that unfolded. So I realised I wasn't gaining any traction in my career in Melbourne and also, unfortunately, at the time, um, my grandma fell terminally ill in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So with those two driving factors, I decided to pack up my life in Melbourne and leave so that I could not only spend time with her and say goodbye to her, but then move my life over to London. And... um, it was actually a choice between London and New York and I decided to go with London because everyone who had been there had just said the most incredible things about it and everyone who had been to New York was like, it's so difficult, go to London, it's much easier to um, navigate the market there and settle in. And so you work for a couple of brands there, big tech brands, um, one being Facebook. Can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, the roles that you were doing and like how that world opened up for you and I guess your career moved forward during that time? Yeah, absolutely. So I arrive in London and the market is enormous. The opportunities Mm. are vast and my career just took off as soon as I started there. I started working for one of the world's largest trade exhibitions uh, companies, transforming their sales operation performance, and they kept on renewing my contract. Had a fantastic boss, had a fantastic team, and was loving it. And as my contract was finishing 
up there, Facebook actually knocked on my door and wanted me to do the same thing that I was doing for the trade exhibitions company, but for advertising companies. So I interviewed with them and 6 p.m. on a Friday evening on my birthday in Cinque Terre, 35 degrees, (laughs) sunny, warm, in this 500-year-old castle that I'm having dinner at, um, Facebook call me, Wage, please, um, can you accept our offer? We don't have the contract at the moment, but um, we're getting it to you on Monday. It's got to go through our New York partners, but can you please come and work for us? And I'm thinking, is this happening to me right now? So, um, of course, I accepted. And incredible birthday. (laughs) Yeah, great birthday present. And then I didn't realize that because they didn't tell me what the advertising, who the advertising agencies were going to be day one of the job. They're like, oh, by the way, um, you're not just managing any advertising agencies, you're actually managing the biggest advertising agencies in the world and their global spend with Facebook across 52 markets. And I'm like, why did you not tell me this before I uh, accepted the role? Like this would have been a a major factor in considering it because I would have, I don't know, done so much more preparation around these agencies and stuff. But, of course, it's all like they wanted to keep everything under wraps so that the hype around the role wasn't um, too crazy. So, yeah. They obviously saw incredible potential in you, though. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah, I ended up running the majority of the operations as a, a solo unit in and towards the end because a lot of the people had moved on to different roles and we were hiring mm. um, and then the pandemic hit so there was a hiring freeze and um, I was absolutely loving it. My life in London was completely different to what it was in Melbourne. I was absolutely mm. flying, like was working at my dream job. I had a fantastic support network. I was travelling Every other week, I was living in the heart of one of the best suburbs with it's bustling with cafes and, and whatnot. Um, Whereabouts was that in London? In Angel, Islington. Ah, uh, yeah, beautiful. Mm-hmm. On top of all of these like Turkish cafes, it was amazing. I was just really enjoying my life. I was the happiest I'd ever been up until that point. And yeah. um, I'd finally found my groove. I had that work-life balance um, yep. and I loved it. And then along comes the pandemic. So how much time did you actually have to make the decision and pack up and return? I had an inkling that I was going to, going to have to move home about 24 hours before I actually booked the flight. So I started looking up flight prices just to gauge what it was going to be like and the availability. Within that next 24-hour period, all of this country borders around the UK started shutting down. I think it was Spain, France and Germany. They'd all shut Mm -hmm. everything down. Australia had shut down borders. Qantas had announced it was shutting down operations internationally. And there was talks in London that they were going to have to shut down all the public transport system and the Ubers. So that was the next day that I had to book the flight. Basically, one of the last seats on that plane for four times the price that I found the day before, so only 24 hours earlier. And I realised that with all of these implications of the pandemic, I had to make the harrowing call to leave London 
24 hours later, basically. Yeah, yeah. So it was very much like, if I'm going to go, I've got to go now. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, that's a really hard thing to reconcile because, you know, you're flying along, you know, loving life, loving work, et cetera. And then you're faced with this real, I guess, T intersection. How did you feel about being back home so suddenly? And did you think it was a temporary thing coming back and then you'd go back to London or what What was sort of going through your mind at the time? Um, I was an absolute mess when it happened because I wasn't ready to leave London. I was forced to come home during a pandemic and I didn't know how long it would be before I was able to go back to London or even go somewhere else to work internationally. And I had to pack up my life in under 24 hours at the time. So I had to quit my dream job. I had to shut down the limited company that I was operating under. I had to um, pack up all of my stuff into shipping boxes, find a way to store the shipping boxes so that the company could come and pick it up because the boxes were going to be after I'd already left. I had to Mm. um, organise a suitcase to live out of for the next few months until the boxes had arrived in Australia, I had no idea how I was going to actually get to the airport because all of these implications of them announcing that they were going to shut down public transport. And the worst part of it was I couldn't say goodbye to any of my friends or my work colleagues. I just had to kind of pick up and leave. So I thought that the pandemic wasn't going to last as long as it did. I thought it was going to be kind of like bird flu about 15 years ago where it was H1N1 and that it would only last a few months. So I thought moving back to Melbourne was only going to be temporary. And you asked if I wanted to return to London or if I knew I was going to return to London. I think given the the situation in which I had to pack up and leave, I felt like I had unfinished business. So there's still that sense of I would love to go for a new adventure in London or in another global hub like Singapore or even Scandinavia because they've got some great work-life balance um, laws and a government that supports them very well there. Mm, Yeah. Did it ever occur to you actually that you might stay and ride the pandemic out or did you go, no, look, that's just not, not an option for me? Because I think you were on a visa restriction too, weren't you? Yeah. If I decided to stay, I would have risked being stuck there with an expired visa. And (laughs) I didn't know what that would look like. There was no laws around managing repatriations and pandemics and expired visas. Now there are, but I didn't want to risk not being able to go back to London because I always saw that as an opportunity to pursue my career there in the future. So, you give yourself six months to reacquaint with life at home and kind of see how this this pandemic unfolds. And then you think, okay, it's time to look for a role. But despite working in an in-demand sector, this actually wasn't an easy or straightforward time for you. Why do you think you struggle to get traction with the local job market here? There are so many different factors at play, or there were so many different flat factors at play. The biggest one was that we're in a pandemic and looking back now two years later, Melbourne has had the world's longest lockdown. That was a major factor at play on the job market because 
People were losing their jobs left, right and centre. Um, the market over here is so much smaller than over in London to begin with and then you add a pandemic on top of that. And even though big data analytics uh, is a trending topic, it's still in its infancy in Australia because we've got such a small market. The companies over here are much smaller and they don't necessarily have a global lens to them. So the number of jobs over here just doesn't compare to what they have over in the financial hubs like London and Singapore. So unless you know someone who works in the company, then it's really hard to even have an interview. So you have um, now landed a role some 12 months later, and it's a great role with a global company. Can you tell us about how you found it and a little bit about what you're doing? So when I was over in London, I made sure I kept in touch with my network back at home. And when I came home, even though we were in lockdown, I was having regular Zoom catch-ups with my network for like Zoom coffees to try and start those conversations again. Mm -hmm. And I believe that one of the most important decisions you can make in your career is to choose a leader or a boss who is in full support of you. So when one of my mentors from about six years ago approached me, um, so she asked me to come and work with her team and she was building out a data platform um, for an incredible company. I was like, I didn't know who the company was at the time. I was like, yeah, of course, like that's an incredible opportunity. So after interviewing with Compass Group, I realised that both of my bosses, so that lady and another incredible um, data and digital leader were international citizens like myself. It was a no-brainer to accept the offer. So I grabbed the opportunity with both hands and I ran because not only is it an incredible company with a great culture, but it has that global lens and it supports that international experience, which is really exciting. So I'm now helping to transform the data and digital operations for Compass Group for all of Asia Pacific. And we're a new team that's been developed to help support the growth that the pandemic has brought to Compass because we've had to re-pivot the way that we do business. And it's a really exciting time for us because we get to build our own team from scratch. It's an international team. Yeah. And like me and a lot of others, people haven't heard of Compass Group. Yeah, I was going to say, can you tell us a little bit about Compass Group for those who don't know the brand? Yeah, so we're not a household name because we're business to business, but we're the largest contract food services company in the world. So we um, provide food services to hospitals, airports, mining sites, event stadiums, and many other areas. We have over half a million employees worldwide, and we're one of the top 20 companies on the London Stock Exchange. So talking about household names, we're a very similar size to Samsung, H&M, 7-Eleven. Okay. So we're, we're quite a large organisation. Yeah. So it's a wonderful opportunity and a wonderful company. I'm back working in a global company, doing what I love with my big data analytics. I get to work with an incredible team. I'm living a digital nomad lifestyle. 
I was going to ask because uh, we're chatting to you in Brisbane. You're originally from Melbourne, if you think about your Australian base, but you've um, you've been kind of chasing the pandemic away, haven't you? <laughs> Absolutely. I got locked out of Melbourne after going to the Wit Sundays for my birthday. And there seems um, to be a theme here with you and your birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yes. You've caught on to it. I do like to travel and spoil myself for my birthday. And um, spent the first two months of the role working in Hamilton Island, Early Beach, with Sundays, and then the last two months working in sunny Brisbane. So I'm definitely following the theme of a digital nomad and will continue to do so. So what do you think it was that Compass saw in you that others didn't or other companies didn't? I think they saw my international experience as a compliment rather than a detriment. They saw how I demonstrated adaptability and a high tolerance for change by living in different countries. And they also valued that I had the ability to adapt and manage change, which is incredibly important when you're dealing with an international company that's trying to re-pivot out of a pandemic and grow especially after lockdown. So I also have a really unique skill set that not many people have or understand. And there was a lack of understanding about how valuable it would be because, as I was saying before, Australia is still in its infancy when it comes to big data analytics. And the people that I was speaking to that I would eventually interview with after 12 months of trying, um, they didn't necessarily understand my value because they hadn't worked overseas um, themselves. They weren't in my industry. A lot of the times they were the HR manager that was trying to figure out um, whether or not I should be interviewing. And they were trying to tick a box for a short-term role or short, short-term short fix rather than trying to understand the value that I bring to the company as a whole and mm. looking at it from a more long-term perspective. So there are lots of different elements there, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that one of the things that we often find when we land in an international market is people uh, look, or in a larger market, people look at the composition of skill sets that we bring. Whereas I think when we return, often it's very much trying to find like for like here. And so finding people and organisations that understand how your experience comes together and not just one or two skill sets is hugely advantageous. So huge kudos to Compass for seeing that and for seeing the long-term potential. I've seen that across the board um, within Compass and it's a fantastic Mm. culture. So I encourage anyone who wants to interview for them, it's a wonderful company and I'd love to welcome them in. So knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently if you could go back in time? What I would have done differently would be, I wish I found InSync networking group (laughs) earlier um, because that piece facilitated so many like-minded connections and support that I wish I had earlier so that I didn't feel Mm. isolated in my situation and in my repatriation. I felt lost when I came home with what I thought was a great career, 
but no one wanted to even interview me. And eventually, after a year, I got to the interview stages, but the companies didn't understand the value that I could bring. And I felt like an imposter and I started questioning myself, my values, my career. And it wasn't until I founded WAD and I came across the InSync Network Group that I understood that I wasn't alone in this situation and that so many high-profile expats were having the same struggles repatriating that I was having. And not to mention they came home under normal circumstances. Yeah. And I had the same struggles as they did, but with a pandemic thrown in the mix. Yeah. And I, look, I think at the heart of InSync, I mean, we formed as, as a professional networking group simply because people did feel isolated in that journey. And it's a really, really um, a difficult time in terms of questioning your identity and questioning your worth and all those things because you actually go from like, you know, can I actually fit in? again at home, not where do I fit, but can I fit? And so I think knowing that you're not alone in that and normalizing that experience is, is so important. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been an incredible ride. We've met incredible people such as yourself. So it's been good. Yeah. It's definitely the missing puzzle piece for expat repats because you know what you need to do in terms of finding a house, buying flights, finding a job, but you don't realise how important that networking piece is to find those like-minded connections. And, um, you know, you can go for a million coffees, but if they're not the right types of connections, the Mm. value just isn't there. Yeah, that's right. And I think too, even for those who come back with a role, it's understanding that you're still looking to meet with other globally minded thinkers and continue to learn and, and I guess share those experiences in a way that, you know, gives you the freedom to do it. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, that experience of finding new networks, I mean, one of the things that I love about your story is, is that when you got home, you realized is that you, you needed a network and you couldn't find one. So you thought, well, if I can't find one, I'll create one. (laughs) Um, And I think that's an incredible, um, incredible story. Did you research professional groups locally before deciding that there was an opportunity? And and I guess why make it women focused? So I did research groups when I landed in Melbourne because I was a part of similar groups in London Mm. and I wanted to you know, build my network, start meeting new people in this field and try and find the right job opportunities as well. But nothing came up. I only saw one event that was $1,500 per ticket and it was a full 12-hour conference. And most people don't have that type of time or want to spend 12 hours in a conference or want to spend $1,500 on a ticket. So I wanted to build out a more casual platform that um, was accessible to anyone and everyone who worked in this field and to facilitate those types of connections. Um, You asked why make it women-focused as well. So traditionally, big data and analytics has been a male-dominated industry and I wanted to be able to support the minority group. And when I came home, the only people that I knew working in my industry were my ex-bosses who were all male. So I realised that I wanted to meet more women who were of like minds and 
um, who worked in this field and I wanted to be able to provide that platform for us to grow our careers together. On that note as well, I had always been surrounded by a cohort of women who have peaked in male-dominated industries, um, with my mother being the biggest influence so far. Amazing. What does she do? So she's um, actually the market leader Australia-wide in her road safety and traffic infrastructure company, Traffic Calming Australia. And um, so they build um, road furniture, as I like to call it, like speed humps, roundabouts and provide all sorts of road safety initiatives as well. And she is super successful despite not having any formal education. She had to quit school at grade five because her her father died at 35 and left uh, her mother with nine children under the age of 14 and then she grew up working in sweatshops and now she's an absolute powerhouse. Incredible role model. Incredible. Yeah, she's an incredible role model um, for me and other and other women alike. And I'd also like to add, actually, a fun fact that um, countries who have the highest workforce participation of women actually have the highest standard of living. So it's important to encourage women to participate in all business verticals. Um, I myself started my career cleaning bricks with my tradie dad. (laughs) And now I wanted to support women in the field which I've gravitated to and I'm passionate about. So that's how WAD came to fruition. How do you, I mean, like starting the network, I'm sure it's it's helped in feeling more settled and engaged with living back in Australia. Can you talk to that a little bit for us? So um, I started WAD because I saw that gap in the market in Melbourne. But now that I've been on my digital nomad journey and I've been traveling around, I've seen that gap nationwide. And I've realized that there's a gap in the entire Australian market. So as I was saying before, in each city I go to, I run these um, events and that's helped me feel more settled and feel more engaged with the community. Mm. And I think at the heart of it, we're all a craving connection and a place to feel a sense of connectedness too, and especially in our careers. I mean, I think that's really important. And the, the last two years have definitely shown that. So, yeah. Um, we know you'd love to go overseas again. Well, firstly, where do you think you'll go? And how will you manage being an expat and then a repat, I guess, differently this time? I think that... Oh, well, I'd like to do my digital nomad thing for the next little while and travel around um, Asia Pacific mainly because I need mm-hmm. to be in this time zone. Yep. Um, but eventually I wouldn't mind moving over to a hub like Singapore because mm-hmm. I've heard some wonderful things about expats and repats who have lived there. And, yes, yeah, Scandinavia, Europe is just such a wonderful place to work and yeah. um, be positioned in. So. I think, yeah, I wouldn't mind going back there as well. Yeah, the world's your oyster, isn't it? So, you know, especially when you've got a company such as Compass behind you that is supporting remote working and different ways of working, which is is amazing. So what advice would you give expats who come back into a similar situation such as yourself? Um, Definitely patience. Start networking early. 
focus on what you can control and most of all, enjoy the time off. So, Wage, as you know, we like to close um, all of our podcasts with five quick questions. So I'd love to put those to you now. Um, The first one being, living overseas taught me what about myself? Living overseas taught me how important travel is for regeneration of energy, self-development and growth. Yeah, wonderful. And it opened up my eyes to how much I love learning and immersing myself in new cultures. The number one skill I use today in my business is, or in my role? Uh, Problem solving on my feet. The best thing that I have discovered since arriving home is? Since arriving home after living overseas for an extended period, you arrive and you see your country for the first time Mm. uh, because you see it through a fresh set of eyes. And with my fresh set of eyes, I could appreciate not only Australia's beauty in terms of the natural wonders that we have, like the outback, the national parks and the beaches, but also the opportunities that lie within a much smaller market and being able to start up WAD in that capacity. And I've also discovered how incredible Brisbane is Ah. and it rivals Melbourne. Ah. (laughs) I think Brisbane's really grown up quite a lot. Um, Yeah, so it's a bit of a sleeping giant really. Yeah, Melbourne needs to pick up its game now. (laughs) So the first thing um, I'd encourage a new repat to do is? Number one, join InSync Membership (laughs) Group. (laughs) Completely unsolicited. I love it. Um. Yes, I'm uh, Instinct's number one unofficial ambassador. Yes, I think we'll have to actually formalise that. You've been amazing at spreading the word. So thank you for that. And I would also say organise network catch-ups like MAD. Find a morning routine that can keep you focused, balanced and sane from all of the turmoil that comes with repatriating. Mm, Routine is so important, yeah. Absolutely. And be kind to yourself is the last one I'd say. Yeah, yeah. And finally, a word, song or quote that best describes my time overseas is? A word would have to be bliss and a quote would have to be, you'll never be completely at home again because part of your heart will always be elsewhere. That's the price you pay for the richness of knowing people and living in more than one place. Beautiful quote. I think that's Miriam Adney. Yeah, beautiful quote. Um, Yeah. Oh, Wade, you've been really generous with your time and I love your story. I think it's an incredible journey that you've been on and I'm really proud to share it. So I wish you well and I wish you well with women in analytics and data as well. And for those who are listening and this is your field or your playground, we will put the links in the show notes. So thanks again, Wage. Yes, thank you so much for your time, Margot. Looking forward to catching up when I'm back in Melbourne. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review, share it with your friends and family, and subscribe for future episodes. For more information on our guests, please head to our website, insyncnetworkgroup.com, where you can check out the show notes and also find more information about our fabulous community and membership offerings.